Good morning, True Life. I'm Joanne Bernie and... I'm Sean Bernie. And we want to say uh, good morning. And we want to say how much we miss meeting with you guys in person. And we hope you can come visit us at the farm soon. And we wish you all a very blessed day. Today's reading will be Exodus 1, 8 through 22. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Remesis as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Good job, honey. <laughs> Take it away, Pastor. Love you, true life. <laughs> that was Emily in there. Thank you, Bernie family. You may have a seat. So we're continuing our study. This is the second week of the book of Exodus, a major campaign through the book of Exodus. We got some life groups studying this. Our kids are studying this. Uh, in our kids' ministry, our kids' life groups are studying this. We've got a Bible reading plan during the week. Um, by the way, if, if you uh, have been um, doing that Bible reading plan, I would love to talk to you after service. I just want to find out how that's been for you uh, and maybe how we can kind of just help make it um, more engaging, more understandable. Um, so I, I will be available afterwards. Not, I, I'm literally asking you to come to me so we can talk about that. I want to pick your brain. Um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'm going to be available so you can pick my brain. I want to pick your brain about that. So if you have been doing that Bible reading plan, please see me afterwards. Um, but anyway, this is week two. Last week was an introduction week, and we said this. This was a main point of last week, that God's people are part of God's bigger story. God's people are part of a bigger story. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the history of God's people, the history of the world. And, and, and the book of Exodus was written to, to, to show the people of Israel who were about to enter the promised land, this is your history. This is the story you guys are a part of. And, and we too are part of this larger story of redemption. And we can choose to either allow this story to drive our hearts or we can try to live according to our own puny, pathetic stories where we're the center of the universe, where everybody else exists to serve us, where everybody else is an obstacle to our kingdoms and our sense of control. Or we can choose to live within God's story and allow his story to drive our hearts 
and motivate us forward. Today, this morning, as we continue in Exodus chapter 1, we're going to cover the, the, the passage that the Bernies just read, which is a very violent and dark passage. I actually put out a parental warning yesterday for parents whose, whose kids uh, stay in service or, or watch online, just, just kind of like a be aware. My nine-year-old's in the back there running tech, and well, not running tech, but serving on tech, um, um, and and, and, and uh, I'm not saying it's completely inappropriate for kids, but just be aware that there's some sobering stuff here that you might need to explain to them later. This is a dark time in the history of God's people. This is a dark moment in the history of God's people. And what we're going to talk about is two kinds of fear. When darkness comes upon the world, we can react in fear of God or we can react in fear of everything else. Fear of God or the fear of everything else. Put another way, we can either choose to fear God, which appears risky and leads to sacrifice and sometimes even leads to loss, but in the end, there's joy, there's fulfillment, or we can choose to cling to a life of self-preservation, cling to our sense of control, cling to uh, our own kingdoms, which appears to be the safe route. But in the end, it leads to a fear of everything else. There's actually a book out. I didn't read it, but there's a book out entitled Fear God or Fear Everything Else. Because that's really the reality. When we fear God, we are free from the fear of everything else. And that's my main point today is that God's people fear God and experience great freedom. When we fear God, it leads to great freedom. And I'm going to try to unpack that and explain that through this passage. And I hope that's what we walk away with. What does it mean to fear God? What is the fear of God? How does it lead to the, the freedom from the fear of everything else? We're going to see that, I believe, in this very disturbing passage, which is in Exodus 1, 8 through 21. So we're going to just kind of take it line by line. And Lord, would you just open up our hearts, open up our minds to hear from you today, illuminate your word, let it shine into our hearts. Just like we're waiting for the sun to melt that ice out there, Lord, would you melt by your spirit, melt some of the hardness around our heart this morning, the distractions around our heart so that we can hear from you? Speak, Lord. Amen. All right, starting in verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now, if you remember from last week, Joseph was one of the children of Jacob. And he was sent into Egypt. His brothers sold him into slavery, but he ended up being second in command of all of Egypt so that he could save the land of Egypt and save the people of Israel, his family, from a famine that hit the land. He had the authority and the power to move his family, the family of Jacob and all his brothers, 
into Egypt where they were saved, where they were preserved, and where they began to multiply into the great nation that God promised Abraham they would become. So they're multiplying and multiplying generation after generation until finally that generation is dead, a new king comes to power, and he's like, Joseph, who? Joseph, who? That Hebrew? Ah, whatever. He has no respect for Joseph. He has no gratitude for the role that Joseph played in saving many lives of Egyptians. He had just utter disrespect for Joseph. And that led to, let's, let's look at verse 9. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the king of Egypt is, if you can read into this, he's scared. He's concerned. There's a fear there that the people of Israel are going to get become too numerous and they will become a threat that they they will become a threat to the king's power to the status of Egypt in the world they're going to join with the enemies oh no we better do something we better grasp for control and this is what happens when preserving our own status our own lives our own power our own sense of control becomes top priority other people become threats easily and we become afraid, and we grasp for control. And so the king said, we need to stop them from multiplying. And remember last week, God's goal was what? To multiply his people, be fruitful and multiply. So the king is setting himself up as an enemy to God's goal, an enemy in God's story. See that? Let's keep going. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them, over the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So he grasps for control because he's scared, and that leads to the people of Israel becoming enslaved, becoming slaves, becoming oppressed. He had the power, the king had the power, and he had the position to grasp for control in a, in a systematic way by oppressing the people of Israel. And I submit to you that any time human beings have oppressed another group of human beings in history, it is driven underneath at the root by some kind of fear. The fear of loss, of power, of wealth, of status, of control. I'll give you a few examples from modern history. We had the Confederates fighting for slavery in the south, largely out of the fear of our way of losing our way of life, the fear of losing our wealth, the fear of losing our property. We've got to provide for our family. These slaves are part of our estate. You can't take them from us. There was a fear there and that they were able to justify what they were doing out of the fear of losing what they had out of self-preservation. Hitler, Hitler, filled with hate for certain people groups, um, but he was trying to build an empire, and other people groups were threats to that effort to build an empire, and he did what he did. 
There were German Christians during the time of Hitler who turned a blind eye to what he was doing largely because of fear of what might happen to them if they said something, if they stood up, their lives being put at risk. During the mid-20th century, there were southern states who pushed back against desegregation out of fear of losing our way of life. And many, you know, you can look back in history, many believe that, oh, the, the, the blacks, the colored folks, they're fine down here. They're getting along just fine. We don't have to mix. We, we both do better segregated. They were afraid of losing their way of life. Tom Sargent and I have been doing a podcast on uh, justice for the unborn as of late, the last few weeks. Women and couples and men pressuring women to choose abortion, not because they hate babies, but out of fear, out of fear of their plans being ruined, out of fear of their, their lives being turned upside down, out of fear of not being able to take that scholarship to college. Fear drives us to do wrong things to various degrees. We can all judge those oppressors, those who have been on the other side of the, the doing the oppressing, but that's in all our hearts. We're all capable of that because of our own fear, our own fear of losing, our own fear of, uh, of, of not having control. Consider the bully on the schoolyard playground, right? We all know now that there's all insecurities in there, in his own heart. That's why he's doing the bullying. Parents who are overprotective of their kids, helicopter parents, right? Is anybody a helicopter parent in here? You had one of those helicopter parents? Anybody want to admit that? Largely, it's driven by fear, fear of their child's safety or their health or something. Fear drives us. Prejudices that we hold against certain people groups or certain neighborhoods is often driven by, by fear, you know, don't go into that low-income neighborhood where there's a lot of crime. You're liable to get shot. Or don't go into that rich, wealthy neighborhood because they're going to think you're an intruder and you're liable to get shot. Right? It works different ways. See? Consider some of the everyday moments that you and I face just a, on a daily basis. Sometimes we don't call it fear, but it's anxiety. It's, a, it's, it's in the fear category. You get an email from somebody and you feel misunderstood. You feel falsely accused. Do you ever get one of those? My first instinct is, well, I better clear this up. I better resolve this. And largely, the kind of the first priority, it seems well-intentioned, but oftentimes the first priority in my heart is, I need to make sure that I'm not misunderstood or falsely accused and I'm a little bit anxious that I'm going to continue to be misunderstood or falsely accused. And if that's what's driving me, I might say something in a hard, edgy kind of way, a kind of a hard, edgy kind of response, because that's what's driving me. And it doesn't come out loving. Anybody ever been there? Silently raising your hands. You can also say, yes, pastor, I have been. Consider the married person who loses his or her temper on their spouse. You ever do that to your spouse? Because you feel disrespected, you feel hurt. But oftentimes underneath that is the fear that you're going to continue to be disrespected. Why isn't my spouse listening? Why aren't they changing? Is this how it's going to be? 
There's a fear there. If you were disrespected once every five years, you probably wouldn't lose your temper. But if it feels like it happens multiple times and there's a pattern, oh no, this isn't changing, I better raise my voice. This isn't changing, I better say something in a more persuasive, aka more unloving way to get through to them. That's us grasping for control just like Pharaoh did, right? Just plays out differently. Out of fear, out of fear. Or the single person, one more example, the single person, afraid of being single the rest of their lives, so they settle for somebody they know is not healthy for them. Shows up in our lives in so many different ways. The king of Egypt, he just had a lot of opportunity, a lot of power and authority to exercise control in a very systematic, very oppressive way, and he was able to make the Hebrews his slaves. But look what happened. Verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. He set himself up as an enemy of God's goal, God's story, and the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. God was like, my story's going to continue. God's story couldn't be stopped by this king trying to grasp for control. So what did he do? So the Egyptians came to dread. Another word for dread might be fear. Fear the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. The oppressors are afraid of the oppressed. So what does he do? He amps up the control, works them harder, more ruthlessly. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They were afraid of the people they were oppressing, and so they turned it up, grasping for control. And then the king added another component in his attempt to control. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you're, by the way, these, it, it, likely, I was learning this past week, likely it wasn't just two Hebrew midwives. There's a lot of, you know, the, the Hebrews were many. So it's likely they were kind of the overseers of the team of midwives. So the king of Egypt says to them, hey, here's the deal from now on. Verse 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, you're delivering this baby, their head's coming out. If you see that it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. I don't know exactly how they would have killed them, but as the head's coming out, they're seeing it's a boy, might just be strangle them. Strangle them. Tell the moms, oh, didn't make it, didn't live. That's what he's telling the Hebrew midwives to do. This is what you are to do from here on out. This is horrific. This is murder, number one. This is murder based on ethnicity, number two. And it's murder based on gender, number three. Out of fear of them multiplying. Now, the girls 
we can deal with, the girls we can use, the girls we can find some good use for, but the boys kill them. Government-mandated murder of baby boys all out of fear, out of dread of the people of Israel multiplying and therefore his kingdom being threatened, his power being threatened, the status of Egypt being threatened. By the way, gender-based abortion still happens in the world today. Places like China and India, you see that the abortion of girls, the rate is far higher than the abortion of boys, which is somewhat ironic, a woman having the freedom to choose what to do with this life in her womb has led to less women in the world. It's sad. It's based out of fear, driven by fear. Now, these two midwives were named. Moses names them. They don't show up anywhere else in the Bible. Again, but they're named. They're honored. Why? Let's keep going. Verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. These two midwives feared God. Instead of fearing the king of Egypt, they feared God. And that led to them disobeying the king of Egypt. They could either fear the king, in other words, or they could fear God. They couldn't do both. The fear of God won out. The fear of God won out. Now, when it says fear of God, what does it mean? Because the Bible talks about the fear of God in different ways in Scripture. We are commanded to fear God. We're told that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So we're to have a fear of God in the sense that we have a big awe of God. God looms bigger in our hearts than everything else. There's a reverence for God. There's a woe of God. Like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, there's a, whoa, look at that. It's not the kind of fear that makes you run away from God. It's not the kind of fear that makes you go, I don't ever want to go see the Grand Canyon. No, but you go there and you go, you go to the edge gingerly, right? Wow. It's the kind of fear you want your kids to have of the street. You know, you don't want them running into the street carelessly and recklessly. You want them to, you want them to go, look both ways. It's a, the it's a kind of fear that makes you just kind of sober-minded around it. Look both ways before you cross the street. It's where if their friend said, hey, I want a double dog there, you to close your eyes and cross the street. They're going to have a bigger fear of the street than they are of their friend making fun of them. Right? They're going to go, I don't care what you think of me. I ain't closing my eyes across the street. I'm looking both ways. That's kind of fear, right? it's, it's, It's not the kind of fear that would make them run away from the street completely and have nightmares about the street. It's just a sober-minded about it, a healthy kind of reverence about it. Uh, when my wife comes home, there's a healthy kind of fear that runs through my body that makes me go, oh, no, is the house clean? <laughs> not to where I dread her coming home and not to where I think she's going to uh, beat me up or be mad at me, but there's just a healthy kind of, ooh, I want to please her. Is, is the house clean? Kind of comes to the forefront of my mind in that moment. Anybody else have anything like that in your marriage? It's kind of a healthy kind of fear. These midwives 
knew that killing these babies was murder, was wrong. And they chose to live with a clear conscience before a holy God rather than safety, rather than security. Two women had the courage to stand up to a king because the fear of God leads to courage. The fear of God leads to courage. Oh, let that sink in. The fear of God leads to courage. We see this all throughout Scripture. I give you example after example. I'll just name two. You know the story of David and Goliath? David was probably scared of Goliath, but he had a bigger fear of his holy God, a bigger reverence, a bigger awe of God than he did of Goliath. So he went out and fought Goliath. We see another character named Daniel showing up later in Scriptures in the book of Daniel. Where he's told, you can't pray to your God or you might be thrown into the lion's den. What did he do? He said, no, I'm going to pray to my God because I have a bigger view of God, a bigger awe of God, a bigger fear of God than I do the fear of those lions. We see in modern history this kind of courage taking place where the people of God stand up against injustice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, one of the exceptions during the Nazi regime, a, a, a German Lutheran pastor who stood up against Hitler, ended up being killed for it in a concentration camp. Martin Luther King, other leaders in the civil rights movement could have stayed silent. They could have said, you know what? We're not going to push the envelope too much. But they had a bigger view of, of God that led them to, to them standing up against injustice. Women who do choose to keep their babies and couples who do choose to keep their babies when it means their lives will be flipped upside down, when it means they, they don't know how they're going to be able to afford it, when it means they might not be able to go to college. That's courage. And I've talked to some women recently who have had abortions and who are sharing that with others in the hopes that they can help other women make better decisions or help them heal from their past. That's courage. That's a bigger view of God than it is the fear of what might other people think. Whatever stigma and embarrassment and shame other people throw at me, I got a bigger view of God. On a smaller scale, you and I have chances every day to choose the fear of God to drive us over self-preservation, self-defense, self-exaltation, over, over control. I remember when I was, um, I may have shared this story before, when I was younger, um, I was making most of my money through tip income. You know, I was a waiter. I uh, did kids' birthday parties, got tips. I remember sitting down with my accountant, and she was like, you know, you don't have to report your tip income. They'll never know. And I remember sitting in her office looking at her going, they'll never know, huh? She's like, no, never know. I was like, I like this accountant. <laughs> but I remember thinking, God's going to bother me later on about that, though. God's going to bother me. I don't want to be woken up later on tonight about that one. And I knew that's what God's going to do because God loves me too much to allow me to slip into this pattern of dishonesty. So I was like, tax me, report it all, let me get taxed. Whatever happens, whatever money I lose, 
tax me. I'd rather have a clear conscience before my big God than to save some money and be bothered later on. I'll put it like this. Doing the right thing flows out of feeling the right fear. We're going to be driven by some kind of fear, some kind of concern, some kind of anxiety. Let it be the right kind of fear that leads to doing the right kind of things. Think about it practically on a psychological level, right? Like think about, take it outside of the realm of spirituality. Just like, here's an example. You get a new car. You, you might be a little anxious about your new car getting dented, right? That's what happens when you get a new car. Anybody, right? You've been there, right? You're with me so far? Yeah, yeah. You, get, you drive it to the mall. You're like, oh, I'm going to park on the other side of the parking lot just in case, right? It's new. You don't want your kids getting in it. Take your shoes off, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, well, imagine, imagine that you got this new car and you let your teenage 22-year-old maybe son take it out one night. Be careful, you tell him. Be very careful with the car. Well, imagine he goes out. A few hours later, you get a call from a police officer. Sir, ma'am, your son was in an accident tonight. What kind of fear is going to run through your body? Is it, please tell me my car's okay? Or is it going to be, please tell me my son's okay? What we fear is based on what we value the most, right? You value your son's life more than you value your car. So the fear of God is when we value God, what he thinks, pleasing him, more than we value pleasing other people, more than we value holding on to our stuff, our wealth, our kingdoms, our sense of control, our sense of being understood. Good. Our sense of needing to get our point across, our, our need to be right, our need to have things fair, all that stuff should pale in comparison to a big, holy God. If he is more valuable than those things, then the fear of God will drive us and it, we will be free from the fear of the other things. I reference those kinds of emails where I might feel misunderstood or falsely accused, and my first instinct is to go, let me clear this up. Let me grasp for control by trying to clear this up right away. Well, here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the danger in that when we're driven by that. And we, 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 we speak in a way that's biting, sarcastic, sometimes hard and edgy. We might get our point across, and we might be understood in the end at the cost of being loving to a brother or sister or spouse, which means we have offended a holy God. So we might get understood. Is my point clear? Oh, they might be crystal clear, but we've just offended a holy God. So you know what helps me? I stop and go, wait a second. Is my conscience clear right now? That's a question I ask. Practically, it just helps realign and recenter where my fear should be. Is my conscience clear before God? Before I send this email, before I respond, is my conscience clear before God? If it is, Lord, keep it that way. Let that be my primary concern right now. 
and not being misunderstood, not resolving this issue. The results are in your hands. Help me to be faithful right now, to be as loving as I can be. The results are in your hands. I don't need to fear being misunderstood. I don't need to fear things being unfair or feeling unfair. I need, my biggest concern is my conscience being cleared before you. If my conscience is not clear, because I've already hit send on an email or I've already said something to my wife, then I got to go, I got to go apologize. That is my primary concern, not being understood, not clearing up my side of things. My primary concern has to be, I'm sorry for what I said, for how it came off, for the tone, and then leaving it at that. Now my conscience is clear. This thing being unresolved, it literally matters less once I ask this question. Is my conscience clear before God? It realigns and recenters where my fear should be. I would submit to you that any time we sin, it is because we have a lack of fear of God in our hearts. Anytime we sin, God is not looming as the big holy God that he should in that moment in our hearts. Sometimes it's, it's within a whole area of our lives, a whole pattern of behavior. I made the mistake a few weeks ago of mentioning Ravi Zacharias kind of off just a quick, I said I was going to be putting out resources by Ravi Zacharias Ministries and a couple people brought up like, whoa, don't you know what's going on with Ravi Zacharias right now? Truth be told, I didn't. I knew some stuff that had come up a, a couple years ago that at the time weren't um, substantiated. There was investigations that didn't find things. So I found out this past week that the last two weeks Oh, wow. New stuff has come forward. Things have been substantial. Oh, my goodness, the investigations. He, he was a licensed worker, minister, ordained worker in the Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, they recently put out a statement. And my gosh, this, this, the, the, this guy was living a double life. And I was reading stuff that was, oh, made me, made me sick. The, 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 the sexual misconduct at such a horrific level made me sick, bothered me. And it was, you know, it, there's worth, more, more should be said, and I eventually probably will talk about that. But suffice it for today to say that he did not have a fear of God when it came to that area. You can at least say that. There was an area of his life where there was not a healthy fear of God ruling and reigning in his heart. Because anytime there was a pattern of sinful behavior that we keep hidden, and I want to emphasize that part of it, that we keep hidden, there's, there's no fear of God. The fear of God has been kicked out. Sometimes we keep it hidden because it's a fear of other people. What will other people say? What will they think? What if I lose my job? What if I'm, uh, I'm, I'm asked to step down as a pastor? Oh, no. But a healthy fear of God says, who cares if I'm fired from my job? Who cares if I'm stepped out from being a pastor? Who cares if people think a certain thing? I need to be free from this. I need this pattern to be broken. My relationship with God is too important. God is too big. I need this broken. I need to come clean. I need to come out in the open. I need light to be shown into this area of my life. I need help no matter what it costs. 
That's what a healthy fear of God does. These two women had that fear. These two women, Shipra and Pua, had that fear. And what happened? Let's keep going. This is becoming longer than it planned. But hang in there with me. Verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Look at their response. Verse 19, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. <laughs> How's that for a dig? They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So it's kind of a lie and it's kind of like an insult at the same time. These were courageous women. Now, some have, you know, might say, wait a second, these guys are lying? Ain't that wrong? Well, generally speaking, lying is wrong. Kids, if you're watching, Kayla back there, lying's wrong. Generally speaking. But there are times, I think, there are exceptions to that rule when it's done to save lives. We... Uh, I come to that conclusion for two reasons. I'm going to uh, quickly sum up those two reasons. First of all, there's precedent in the Bible for people who lie to the enemies of God. There's Rahab later on in the book of Exodus, who, or, or rather Rahab in the book of Joshua, who um, lies to, to hide Israelite spies. The people of Jericho are like, where'd they go? And she's like, I think they went that way. Meanwhile, they're hiding in her, in her house. She's praised later on. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. She's praised in the book of Hebrews. I think that was a time when it was good and right to lie to the enemies of God. Elijah did the same thing. He misled God's enemies. He's like, oh, here, I'll take you to them. He takes them away from, from the city. We, we, we see examples in modern history that we intrinsically know that was good and right to do. Consider families who were hiding Jews during the Nazi regime. Nazis are banging on the door. You got any Jews here? Jews are hiding in the attic. No, no Jews here. I don't think any one of us would be like, mm-mm, that's wrong. They should have told the Nazis exactly where those Jews were in the effort to be honest, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I mentioned earlier, he was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. I think it would have been foolish if he went to Hitler and said, listen, Adolf, I got to be completely honest with you. Cards on the table. Next week, around this time, here's what we're going to do. I don't want to be deceitful. I don't want to do it behind your back, right? We know. We know there are times. There are exceptions. So that's one, that's one, that's one reason why I believe what they did is right, and I don't think we should condemn them for it. The second reason that I believe it was right is the very next verse, verse 20. God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So first of all, the first result was God used their faithfulness to continue his story, to continue his story of multiplying his people. They may not have realized the role they were playing in God's bigger story. All they knew was God is big, we're going to fear him. We're going to be obedient, we're going to be faithful, and God's in charge of the results. I don't think you and I would be here if, if it wasn't for their faithfulness. I think that's why Moses included them. They were part of a generation of babies surviving and living and Israel multiplying. 
so that it, through Israel could come the Messiah, through whom all peoples on the earth could be blessed, including you and I, coming into a relationship with God through that Messiah, Jesus. I think these two women had a huge role in that story of redemption. They didn't know it at the time, but our faithfulness, if we're just content to be faithful and we trust God with the results, we'll find out one day in eternity how God used our faithfulness. And then secondly, God blessed them personally, gave them families of their own at a time when women were desperate to have families, desperate to have children, so that when they got older, there would be people to take care of them. God blessed them because they feared God. They were choosing to be driven by the right fear instead of the wrong fear. So again, my main point is that God's people fear God and experience great freedom. God's people fear God and experience great freedom. The more you fear God, the less anxiety you're going to have about your job not working out or making enough income or things not being fair in your home. And what if this and what if that? All that stuff is going to pale in comparison. It's going to move you less. It's going to bother you less. You're going to be less disappointed, less anxious. Fear of God leads to courage. Fear of God leads to God's story progressing, using our faithfulness in ways we don't even understand. And fear of God leads to blessing. Leads to blessing. So as we close, I'm going to call the band up here. We're going to spend some time worshiping God, responding to this, asking God to fill us with a healthy fear of him. You can't just listen to this sermon and go, all right, I'm going to walk out of here with a bigger view of God. Right? It doesn't work like that. We need the power of God's Spirit to fill our hearts with a bigger view of Him. And I think the first step is to confess where we don't have that healthy view of God, that healthy fear and reverence and awe of God. So before we even start singing, can, can I ask us to stand? And can we just reflect for a moment? What, what, what are you tempted to be afraid of right now? What are you tempted to be anxious about right now? Let's just, let's just think about it for a moment. You can close your eyes if you need to. Just think about it. What, what's, what is it? Is it one of those small examples that I gave, you know, being misunderstood by someone, being taken advantage of at work? What your in-laws are going to think of your dinner tonight? Is it something bigger? What's going to happen to my job? Am I going to maybe make enough money? What if I'm single the rest of my life? Hmm? What if I'm stuck in this marriage the rest of my life exactly how it is right now? What if my spouse doesn't change? What if I can't get through to my adult son, my adult daughter? What if I have to downsize? What if I get COVID? 
Is there a decision that you need to make about something that you know that there's a right way? You know the right way, but it, it comes at loss. It comes at risk. doesn't feel safe. Or you can choose the other way that feels more safe, but you know your conscience won't be clear. Is there a wrong that you need to make right? You need to apologize to someone. And there's a fear that if I apologize, they might use it against me. It might enable them to continue in their wrong behavior. So I don't know if I can apologize. Maybe it's the fear of confronting someone in a loving way, and so you'd rather talk smack about them behind, your, behind their back, right? Anytime we gossip or slander people behind their back, there is not a healthy fear of God. It may not seem like a big sin, but gossip and slander are evidence that we do not fear God like we should. Maybe there's a pattern of sinful behavior, addiction that you have, that you have been keeping in the dark. You haven't been bringing it to the light. Out of fear of what people will think. And you know you need a bigger view of God that will drive you to the light. What is it? Where is it? Where do you need a bigger awe, fear, reverence of our big God? That's the first step, is just to be able to say, I need it. I, I need God to fill me with a bigger fear. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do. One, one more thing. If you were able to identify an area... Could you raise your hand? Just an act of confession. Not going to have you yell it out. <laughs> Don't worry. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Lord, you hear, you hear us. I, I've, got, I've, got, I've got a couple myself. Lord. We're identifying it. We're, we're saying to you, we're confessing. We don't want to be driven by these anxieties and fears. We want to be driven by a bigger fear of you. We want it. We can't will it up in our own strength. We can't muster up that. But we can position ourselves in worship of you and ask that your spirit would fill us. And so that's what we're going to do for a moment right now. We're going we're gonna to worship God. We're going to sing to Him. And we're going to plead with Him to fill us with a big view of who He is. And, I, and I'll even say this. Listen, listen. This is a smaller service. 9 to 15 is smaller than the 11. Especially on ice days like this. Gives us a little more freedom. If you want, come to the front as just a, you know, something about physically moving our bodies as a way of saying, God, mm, 
I want, I want you to fill me. I want you more than I want to stay comfortable, right? More, more than I want the status quo, I want you. So feel free to come to the front as we're praising God. Feel free to get on your knees just as a way of declaring, God, this is how much, this is how desperate I am for your spirit to fill me because I keep slipping back into these patterns. I keep slipping back into the same old responses, the same old reactions to things. Help me, free me. All right. Lead us, team.